Open your Bibles, please, this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. You know, a preacher is always thinking about how will circumstances fit with the subject I'm dealing with. You're always wondering if the subject you're dealing with will have maximum impact given circumstances. I do not know of a better subject to be preaching on than Bible economics. When it comes to the attitude and desires and fears I have for this congregation right now. And that's because none of you can hide from me on economics. You can hide things from me in other areas of your life, but you cannot hide from me your economic prosperity or your economic faithfulness. And the Lord knew that. And let's read a few verses in Luke 16 to remind you that God knew that. And I'm so grateful that this subject fits the circumstances so well. Jesus said in verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. I am concerned and I fear and I'm angry about unfaithfulness in this congregation and my own life. When I get angry, I get angry at myself. Don't think that I'm just taking it all out on you. Would somebody please turn this locker room down at the back, the thermostat. I don't want blocks of ice falling off chairs. It feels cold. I am worried, concerned, and angry over unfaithfulness in this congregation. But you know what I thank God for is that these verses are true. You say, well, all the Bible is true. Yes, but, you know, there are different verses at different times that just seem to be more true than at other times. And one thing I've observed, and it has been confirmed recently and continues to be confirmed, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. You show me a man that is unable to put into practice or unwilling to put into practice the rules I've tried to give you, that is not getting ahead financially, and I'll bet you with great odds, I have found an unfaithful church member in all matters of religion and spiritual Christianity. God said it. Experience has confirmed it. What a great subject to preach on. If you don't wait till I get to the enforcement of Bible economics. Right now I'm just teaching the rules. If you don't put these rules into practice, what are you doing claiming the name of Christ? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Jesus said it. I believe it. Experience confirms it. Be on your guard. Your sin will find you out. 
We want to deal with rule eight this morning to begin with. We've covered seven so far. Rule number one, obey God. God. Rule number two, pay God first. Rule number three, Rule number four, he that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. Minimize your expenses. Rule number five, work hard. The hand of the diligent shall be made fat. Proverbs 13, 4 and a hundred other verses. Rule number six, work smart. Just don't work hard, work smart. Remember, sharpen the axe head before you cut a tree down as Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes 10.10. Rule number seven, Work patiently. If you have patience and realize that riches come with time and effort, you won't be susceptible to financial shysters that are out there trying to get you with some new scheme for you to get rich quick. No one gets rich quick unless it's the judgment of God. You get rich by diligent labor over time. And that's what I taught you last Sunday morning. This morning we want to deal with rule number eight, and that is minimize debt or manage debt. Minimize debt or manage debt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 21, Paul said, If you're a servant, don't mind it. If you're called in the gospel, you were converted being a servant, don't mind it. Don't worry about that. But if you can be made free, do it, rather. The Lord would have you to be free and not to be servants if there's a choice in the matter. Now, all of you have a choice to make. Do you want to be a servant or do you want to be free? Look at Proverbs chapter 22 with me. Proverbs chapter 22. Rule number eight, minimize debt. There's never been a generation that needed a sermon on debt more than this generation. I mean, call call President Reagan this afternoon and ask him if he thinks debt's a problem in the United States. (laughs) He's got a big one to take care of. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7. The rich ruleth over the poor. I love that. The rich ruleth over the poor. God, and, the, and the rest of the verse goes on to say, and, things, and that ought not to be. The world complains. Why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the rich rule over the poor. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it is. And that's the way it shall be. The rich deserve to reign over the poor. The poor deserve to be reigned over. The rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Are the rich borrowers or lenders? The rich, my friend, are lenders, without exception. Does that tell you anything about our country? We'll get to that in just a minute. The rich are always lenders. The poor are always borrowers. The borrower is servant to the lender. The Lord would have you to be free. You have a choice to make, especially in this generation. Are you going to be free or are you going to be a servant to debt? You have a choice. The Lord wants you to be free. He wants you to be free of care. And the more debt you have, the more care you have worrying about that creditor, whether he's going to take his asset back, be bothering you, hassling you on the phone, whether you're going to have enough to make the payments, whether you're going to get late, whether you're going to ruin your testimony before the world. You have all these cares and concerns that can all be taken care of if you'll stay out of debt for the most part. And there's a place for debt. I'll get to that in just a minute. But we want to minimize it and manage debt. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 15 with me. Deuteronomy 15. Let's look at a few verses of Scripture that will tell us what God thinks about debt. 
See how highly he thinks of our advanced society and civilization with all its opportunities for debt. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Here God is offering Israel his blessings if they would hearken in verse 5. Only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. A borrower has someone reigning over him. Most of you and almost all Americans have the banks reigning over them because they're borrowers from the banks. The banks get to dictate what you get to do to a great degree in this country. Wherever there's debt, there's some authority that you may not see at first glance, but but trust me, the authority is there. Whoever is a borrower is being reigned over by someone. This verse states the same principle again. But notice that when God says He's going to bless a people, what do they do? Do they borrow so that they have lots of credit? Is that a sign of blessing? Or is a sign of blessing giving lots of credit by making loans? The blessing here is, Thou shalt lend unto many nations. Look at chapter 28 of the same book. Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's that very long chapter that sets forth the blessings and curses upon the nation of Israel, depending on their obedience or disobedience, respectively. Here's the blessing, beginning in verse 11. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. That sounds like prosperity. Plenty of goods. In the fruit of thy body, lots of children. And the fruit of thy cattle, lots of production. And the fruit of thy ground, good agricultural success. In the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. That's a sign of prosperity. Verse 13, And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. What does God think of a person in debt? He's the tail. Now, don't let your imagination run too wild, but what do we normally... What You can think of expressions that we use to describe the rear portion of an animal. Well, God says the same thing. If you're in debt, you're the tail. If you're lending, you're the head. Now, which do you want to be? Is God giving you any idea of what He thinks about debt? The head or the tail? The choice is yours. What do you want to be? The head or the tail? If we were to continue reading in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord would turn around and say, if you don't obey what I've told you, you'll be the tail instead of the head. And He pours out His warnings of judgment upon them. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 now, and let's see what happened. Nehemiah chapter 5. We saw the promises, Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 28, that the Lord would bless if they would obey. Now, what did Israel do? 
What's the situation that came up? In Nehemiah, they're returning from Babylon and they're rebuilding the temple. Let's read the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. A great cry. Why? For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Does that describe the situation in America? We have mortgaged, we have mortgaged our lands, our vineyards, and our houses. What farmer do you know that owns more than 20 acres that doesn't have a mortgage on his property? If you say I know one, then I'll just raise my ante to 40 acres. I mean, those little farmers don't count. They were given that land. They've mortgaged their lands. They've mortgaged their vineyards. They've mortgaged their tractor. Listen, have you ever bought a $100,000 tractor? A $100,000 combine? Built a half million dollar silo to put it in, put the produce in? I mean, it takes money. They've all mortgaged it. And yet, the only cry, the only cry is for government to support their prices. There ought to be a cry against debt. The people here are crying. And notice this. It's in verse 5, in the middle of it, where it says, Lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. You borrow, and you borrow enough, and what are you doing? What is borrowing? It's stealing from the future to support pleasure today. It's just what our government's doing. Stealing from the future because it is future generations that will have to pay that debt. And they were never consulted. You know, we hear so much about taxation without representation. I mean, what about borrowing without approval? Who's going to pay the national debt of the U.S. that is not, now exceeds $2 trillion? Don't try to think about it. You couldn't imagine that in your wildest dream. You couldn't imagine a billion dollars. You couldn't spend it. You wouldn't know how to spend a billion dollars. You couldn't spend it in a lifetime. Two trillion. Who are we borrowing it from? Future generations. Now, these people understood that. It's a pity that Americans don't understand that. They knew it. We are bringing our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. See, notice that they're talking primarily about sons and daughters not in bondage yet. They're very young ones. Future generations will be brought into bondage because of that debt. Exactly what we have in the good old U.S. of A. 
Do you understand that expenses have been paid to the tune of $2 trillion and somebody will have to pay them? You say, well, the, debt, the government could just renege on their debt and no one would have to pay. That would be a payment overnight. Oh, there, there will be a payment. There will be a payment. One massive payment if they try that. The debt will be repaid and someone, the servants, will then be manifested. See, Americans think they're so free, so independent, we have such a wonderful government. And they're living in such prosperity. Do you know what $2 trillion would do to the U.S. economy if it was taxed at once? It will be paid, and then the servants will be revealed. They are servants, the American people who have put themselves into debt by choice, voluntarily turned their future generations into servants, and they will serve. They will be the tail. And it's beginning to happen, isn't it? Look at Leviticus chapter 25 with me. Leviticus chapter 25. A great cry issued there in Nehemiah. But what cry is there today? Lower rates so we can borrow more. Send another resolution to Congress to raise the debt ceiling one more time. You know, every two months, Congress has to raise the debt ceiling to be able to let our government go on spending. Cry for more, more, more. Feed my habit. You ought to see some charts that I used to prepare for Michigan National showing the size of the U.S. deficit, its growth rates, and the rate of interest that they're paying on that debt, which gets higher and higher every year. We are very soon approaching a point in time, and I mean we're not too many years, not decades, but years, where the U.S. government will be unable to tax the people enough to pay the interest on the debt. You've heard of compound interest. Now, we talked about compound interest, how it can work for people, right? Anything financial is a two-edged sword. Don't ever forget that. If someone tells you about how much you can make on a certain venture, ask them how much can you lose. And compound interest works great when it's in your savings account. And I was trying to encourage our children. It's wonderful when you have a savings account. It's earning interest for you while you're sleeping. And then those little people that you earn an interest are earning more interest for you. So it is with the U.S. government. Every night while we go to sleep, it's earning more interest and accumulating more. You know, there's only two items in the government list of expenditures that exceed interest. National defense and social welfare. Interest exceeds everything else and give it time. It works with time and a profligate spender like the U.S. government. Someday, servants are going to be revealed. Do you know how you can save yourself from that system? Obey the rules I'm giving you right now. If you have some cash in hand, if you have saved, and you've put some of that savings in the proper vehicles, when the servants are revealed, guess who's going to rule? Where did, where did many Americans make their fortunes? In the prosperity of the 40s and 50s or the collapse of the 30s? Do you know Why? Because they had something, and they weren't the foolish idiots who didn't know how to work patiently, but who were clamoring after Wall Street and the other 
gimmicks that the 20s were known for that people threw all their money into. Some held back and made their fortunes while everyone else was losing. Those who save will rule over those who borrow, if you believe God's word. I believe it, and I'm trying to teach it to you. Here's what God has to say about debt in Leviticus chapter 25. Look at verses 35 and 36. And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. The point I want you to get from these two verses is what does God call a person who needs a loan? A man in decay. A man in decay. Now, that's not very nice. Call somebody a toothache. I mean, here's God saying a man who's in decay is a man who needs a loan. That's God's opinion of borrowers. You're in decay if you borrow money. Borrowing at interest will always cost you more than saving with interest to buy a thing. Now, we live in a nation who's tried to overthrow God's law. Do you know what our government has said? Our government has made it a practice. We want to encourage debt and spending. We don't believe Proverbs 21.17 and we don't believe Proverbs 22.7. How can we throw out those two rules of Scripture? The one says that you shouldn't love pleasure and spend up your substance. The other says the borrower is servant to the lender. How can we get rid of those? Aha! We'll write into our tax laws that if people will borrow, they can deduct their interest from their income and they'll get a tax break. We'll subsidize them through the IRS to borrow money. And those idiots out there that are still obeying Scripture and are saving money and trying to get ahead, we'll take care of them. We'll tax their interest. We'll charge them. We'll make those that are saving money to subsidize those that are borrowing money, and we'll overthrow God's Word. Do you believe that? Now, they didn't sit down. Listen, they're not smart enough to sit down and know where Proverbs 21.17 is found. They sat down under the influence of the devil and the judgment of God and made those decisions in total ignorance. Listen, when they come out of school, they believe that works. After you spend four or eight years in Columbia University, you come out thinking that works. Charge those who save, take from them and give to those who borrow, and you'll have a prosperous economy. Now listen, I don't believe in any master conspiracy other than at the level of the devil. Do you know why? Because they're not smart enough to form a conspiracy. Listen, our world today is judged by ignorance. They do not sit down in congressional committees and conspire on defrauding the American people. They come out of Columbia and Harvard universities and think that they're helping the American people while they defraud them. And to me, that's the greatest judgment of all. God has taken the wise in their own craftiness and turned their wisdom into foolishness. They think they're going to make us prosperous while they're defrauding us. You say, well, I think there's a conspiracy. Well, go get a master's degree in economics at Columbia University and you'll come back and you'll see my point. It's no conspiracy, but a conspiracy of ignorance on the part of the devil and God's judgment on a wicked nation. 
So how many times have I heard at Michigan National, working with those senior officers who are making a lot of money, well, I can go out and borrow for this because I'll get a tax break for it. Even with the tax break that our government has come up with to try to subsidize borrowers at the expense of savers, can you get that? Do you appreciate what our government does? Penalize those who obey God's word to support those that disobey God's word. But even so, the rule still works. You want to get ahead? Save. Every bank is going to have at least a 5% differential between what they pay you on a deposit and what you pay on a loan. At least. It's usually going to be closer to 10. But it has to be 5 for them to make money in the long run. Okay, let's take an example. Right now you can earn about 7% on your deposits. You're going to pay about 12% to make a loan, to get a loan. Go ahead. You're in a 50% tax bracket. I'll take the most affluent Americans. They borrow at 12%. The government pays 50% of that because they're in a 50% tax bracket. They're still paying 6% extra for everything they buy. The little poor man who works hard and saves his money puts it in at 7%. Well, he's in a high tax bracket. He's not too poor. But he pays 50% of that to the government. He's making 3.5% still on everything he makes. There is still a 9.5% advantage for the man who will not go into debt but who will save his money and then make a purchase, even in this depraved society. And that's in the highest tax bracket. As you come down to our tax brackets, it gets a lot more advantageous to save. Don't ever think you're getting it. How many times have I heard when I've asked someone, why are you going to go into debt for that venture? They'll say, yeah, but I'll get a tax break for it. Do you know that logic is no more superior to the wife who comes home from the grocery store and said that she saved $50 today by spending an extra 200 Do you get what I'm saying? I mean, you've heard that before. I saved $50. Yes, but did you need to spend the 200 And here's a person who goes into a venture for the tax break from primarily the interest. You don't win by borrowing in the long run. God's blessing is upon those who lend, not those who borrow. Remember what I've tried to teach you in the past, while leverage can generate big profits for you. Yes, if you put 10% down in a house and that house goes up in value 10%, what has happened to your equity? It's doubled. If you only have 10% down and the house goes up 10%, you just doubled your equity. That's great, isn't it? What if it goes down 10%? You just lost everything you put into the house. Commodity futures are even better. Buying stock on margin is a good example, too. Don't use debt unless... Two things. Here are two rules, two suggestions I want to give you about borrowing. When do you borrow and when don't you borrow? Anything that you have need of, that if you didn't borrow to buy it, you would have to rent it, go ahead and borrow when it's financially advantageous to do so. You say, what would that be? Like a car. I mean, what if you can't get to work? What if you can't get to work? You've got to get to work, right? There's no question. To have a job, to work diligently, rule five, you've got to get there. You're going to get there one of two ways. You will borrow a car or you will buy a car and borrow the money for it. You'll borrow either way. Borrowing is required. So if you incur debt for a thing like that, 
that there's no difference. Borrowing is involved either way. Look at a house. Those of you who are renting may sit back and say, I'm free of debt. I, I'm not borrowing. I have no debt to anyone. You haven't read your lease. Do you know what every lease says that I've ever signed my name to? Have you ever read one carefully word for word? There is a clause in a lease that says if they don't like you, they can make the whole lease due and owing. Did you know that? You owe the rest of the terms of that lease. If you're there in the third month, you owe them nine months rent whether you're there or not. See, you've borrowed. You've borrowed an asset instead of money directly. You're borrowing nonetheless. So you only borrow for things that otherwise you'd have to rent. Borrowing in both cases. The second rule, never borrow anything else or use leverage for an investment unless you can buy the whole investment outright if circumstances require you to do so. For instance, these guys who try to tell you how to make a million in real estate, tell you to go into a new city, grab the want ads, the classified section, find ten houses, go buy them with nothing down. They're fools. You can do that if you've got enough savings in the bank to buy all ten houses if, if the situation requires you to do so. Go ahead and use leverage if you've got enough in assets to be able to liquidate all that debt at your discretion. See, no one's ruling over you if you've got it in the bank. Now, what does that say about a color television or a new sofa or a new dining room set or a new rifle or, a new vaca or another vacation that you can't afford? Do you need it? Do you have to have it? No, you don't. You don't deserve it until you earn it. You say, I've worked hard 20 years. I deserve a vacation this year. Well, what have you done with all your savings for 20 years? If you have 20 years worth stored up, go ahead and have a good time. If you don't, keep working. You say, well, I get two weeks a year. Go work a part-time job for two weeks. You'll get double pay. The more convenient the borrowing. Remember, that some of these things are from experience because I helped make them this way at Michigan National. The more convenient the borrowing, the more you'll pay. You know, that credit card's the most convenient form of borrowing at all, isn't it? No collateral to put down. No forms to fill out. No one to talk to. You can spend it on anything you want to at any time, 24 hours a day, anywhere. And guess what? It's got the highest rate of interest of any form of borrowing. <clears throat> except, except finance shops in South Carolina. And I hope no Christian would ever go to a finance shop to borrow money. I mean, it's highway robbery down here when you walk in and buy a sofa. And six months later, you have to pay them back 40%. I mean, in Michigan, at least, we had usury limits, which I don't agree with. Anybody foolish enough to pay 40% interest, the bank ought to make lots of money off them. But the more convenient the borrowing, you know, those finance shops walk in, no collateral sometimes, little collateral, just get money when you don't have a thing to your name, you pay high rates of interest. Those charge cards are one of the you know, sources of financial death for American families, unable to control them. They're too convenient. And because we have a society that bombards its citizens day by day through television, newspaper, radio, billboards, and peer pressure, they're always spending, always spending, always spending. I mean, the ones that go to Columbia University and get a master's degree in economics. What do they believe about the economy? What's the best thing for the economy? To get consumers to spend more. 
Can you believe that? The best thing for any economy is for consumers to save everything they've got so that those entrepreneurs can take the capital and invest it. Don't let those credit cards get you. Some of you, I'll tell you what you ought to do with your credit cards. Take out a pair of scissors, cut them in half, and mail them back to the person that issued them and pay it off. They're a very convenient form and they're a nice way to keep track of all your expenses because you get a nice bill at the end of the month. But you better know how to use them. You better already have proven self-discipline financially. The poor should borrow less than the rich. But that's the opposite way it works. The poor are always borrowing more and they get poorer because of it. The poor, the poorer you are in this congregation, the less you should borrow. Interest is going to be higher to the poor people who borrow. A poor person walks in and asks for a loan. He doesn't have any collateral, doesn't have much credit, hasn't ever done anything successfully. They're going to charge him more because the risk is higher. Somebody who's been successful, works hard, has a bank account, has saved, has borrowed before, paid back, he's going to get the lower interest rate. Borrowing is justified for those things that you otherwise would have to rent. You say, how do you know that? Because you're borrowing either way. Do you, you see that principle? A house, you have to have a place to live. Now, how are you going to get a place to live? I only know of two places, two ways. You will rent a place which is borrowing the asset directly from the owner. Or you will buy a place by borrowing the money to buy the asset from the owner. Either way, you are in debt. You don't think you owe your landlord anything when you're renting? You owe him the rest of your lease and you owe him his asset in good condition when he calls for it or when your lease expires. But all of those extraneous reasons we go into debt, like for clothing, <clears throat> unnecessary clothing, furniture, vacations, you cannot justify borrowing to do that. Now, if you use your credit card in a vacation, but you've got money in the bank, and as soon as you get back home and wait your 30 days for the invoice to come in and you pay it off, there's not a thing wrong. You haven't borrowed. You haven't borrowed. If you do borrow money for anything, and this is managing debt, if you do borrow, make sure you make your payments on time. Bankruptcy or being late in your payments, is not something undesirable, unpleasant. It is sin against a holy God. Look at Psalm 37. Look at Psalm 37 with me. It's almost a joke nowadays about making your payments on time. Our grandparents didn't live that way. If they borrowed money on a house, that payment was there no matter what they had to do to get that payment there early. When do you think payments come into a bank for a mortgage? The payment is due on the first day of the month, but there's a 10-day grace period. Would you like to know what day of the month we, the bank receives the most payments? Can you guess? Do I need to give you three guesses? The 31st, the previous month, right? Wrong. The 1st, the 5th. No. You ought to see them on the 10th of the month in the operations department of a mortgage banker. Everyone today assumes that grace means liberty. Grace means that you had 
exigencies come up or circumstances that you couldn't get it there at the first of the month and the bank will not charge you a late charge. They deserve that money on the first. They lose money when you send it in on the ninth. You'll say, then why they do it? Well, they make up for it and everybody who sends it in the 11th with their late charge. You have stolen from a bank when you send your payment in on the 5th. When was your payment due? Look at your payment book and find out. Not paying debts involves lying. When you got the money, I know you made a commitment, either in writing or verbally. You were going to pay it back under such and such terms. If you don't pay it back under those terms, you lied. A debt involves a covenant, verbal or written. If you don't pay that debt back according to its terms, you're guilty of covenant breaking, Romans chapter 1. It involves stealing. For every day that you have a payment that that company deserves, or that bank deserves, you have stolen from that company. You have something of theirs that they would be using if they had it. You have stolen. Paying late is lying, covenant-breaking, and stealing. You say, well, I couldn't meet the payment. Then sell the asset. <coughs> sell the asset and get rid of the loan if you can't handle it. Psalm 37 and verse 21. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Who borrows and doesn't pay? The wicked. Where will you line up? Make your payments on time. God requires you to do so. I mean, today it's just wonderful to file chapter 11 as a business or to declare personal bankruptcy and just say, forget it all. I'm going to start over. Who does that? According to God, the wicked do that. You make your payments. You do not, take a, you do not borrow money unless you can pay. That is why we began this whole series with the testimony of Brother Sam Jones. Do you know why that encouraged me so much? Because that testimony of Sam Jones four weeks, five weeks ago on Sunday evening showed me and you true salvation. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is true salvation. This is about the littlest man in the Bible. Zacchaeus, the little man who climbed the sycamore tree. Little IRS agent. Can you imagine what names he was called, that puny little publican? That's what the Bible called him. Verse 2, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. I wonder how he got rich fleecing the poor while he's making his tax collections. We've got it all in the Bible, don't we? Here's, an, here's a fraudulent IRS agent in verse 2 of Luke 19. Well, he wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up in a sycamore tree. The little runt couldn't see over the crowd, couldn't see the Lord. So he climbed up in a tree. Jesus came to the tree in verse 5, looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the whole crowd, why they knew what this guy had been up to, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Zacchaeus! Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Why, that wicked man, he's been fleecing us for 20 years. 
What's Jesus Christ going home to eat with him? Zacchaeus heard all this murmuring around him. Can you? I mean, it's a light, a dull roar, you know, as he's trying to get the Lord to his house. And Zacchaeus stood in the next, very next verse we read in verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. He just went slice. He didn't give 5% to the poor. He gave 50. 50% of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, you know, falsifying the amount of income that a person owned, Luke 19, it's got it, doesn't it? If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him 400%, fourfold. Now, what did Jesus say to an attitude like that? To this scrawny runt of an IRS agent who said, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor, I'm going to give a 400% return to anybody that I've defrauded. Jesus said in verse 9, This day is salvation come to this house. This day is salvation come to this house. Now, he, he's not talking about regeneration. We don't pay money to the poor to get regenerated. He's talking about practical salvation. This man had been saved from his wickedness by showing full and true repentance. And what should any child of God do if they want to be fully saved? You got it right here. Don't say, I made it up. You've got it. Jesus said, this day is salvation come to this house. Isn't that precious? There's what a man will do when he loves Jesus Christ and wants to obey Him. You know, God requires the payment of debts. Remember, He required Jesus Christ to pay, didn't He? He could not acquit or clear the guilty. Has Jesus Christ ever cleared a debtor? Ever cleared a debtor? Never. He charged the debt to another, Jesus Christ. God always charges His debts and makes people pay. He never writes them off. They will pay. The regularity and promptness of your debt payments is one of the easy ways for you to show the world a good testimony. I have paid my rent, and I'm just going to give you a personal example. I have paid my rent faithfully early. It's never been there after the first day of the month. It's usually there in the middle of the previous month to my landlord. My landlord trusts me so much, he put the sale of his house fully into my hands. I could set the price. I could dicker with anybody that came by to buy that house. Now, he hardly knows me. He's an absentee landlord that lives in North Carolina. But I always paid, and I paid early. If you do that, it's one of the greatest testimonies you can give the world. And it's something that people see. And see, actions speak louder than words. You can tell them a Christian, and if you're late in your debt payments, forget it. Why blaspheme the name of Christ? Don't tell them you're a Christian if you're not going to make your payments on time. It's most interesting that what I've observed in my experience is guess who screams the loudest when their paycheck is a day late? Who screams the loudest when they don't receive their payments right on time? Who will get the most frustrated and most upset if the payroll's delayed a day? The sluggards who don't pay their debts on time. It's amazing. Did you know the Bible teaches us that too? 
Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Why, Jesus taught that principle. Now, isn't that hypocrisy? Those who pay late, you know, they pay on the 5th, the 8th, the 10th of the month on their mortgage payment. But let me tell you, if they walk into the bank on the day they're to receive their interest check on a CD and it's not ready, oh, they've got 30 minutes of vile words and reviling for the poor teller standing there that day. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he'd begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. <laughs> I wish they did that today. I wish banks could come and get your children. I wish they could put you in a coal mine. Chain you all together and you can shovel coal and pay off your debts. Listen, this, com- this country would return to prosperity. Wouldn't it be great? Here's the Lord speaking. <coughs> Took the children. Thank you, Lord. For as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. There's mercy. There's mercy. He forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, verse 28, which owed him a hundred pence. I mean, he owed him a hundred pennies compared to ten thousand talents. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. Can you see this guy? Just been forgiven 10,000 talents and he's grabbing a guy for 100 pence. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Similar words, right? How about identical words? And he would not but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Boy, what if we had that for land contract payments in the U.S.? So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, that's interesting, till he should pay all that was due unto him. The Lord Jesus Christ here describes a situation where a king can reckon among all his servants. Who owes? And if they haven't paid, he could take their children and make them pay, or he could deliver them to the tormentors. Now, the parable is given to teach forgiveness of sins, that God has forgiven you great sins and you're to forgive your neighbor. But there's an underlying principle here that's confirmed by experience. You watch who screams the loudest when they don't get their payments. Go check out their creditors. They'll usually be late. And that is a terrible shame for the hypocrisy of the human nature. Look at Romans 13:8 now. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Here's a verse that has caused some people untold grief. Romans 13:8. Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Oh, no man anything 
I have heard preachers get up and take Romans 13, 8 and make everyone feel in that congregation who had a mortgage debt who had borrowed any money at all like they were sinning the unpardonable sin. How many times have you read that verse and you had debts and you were just condemned in your conscience? Oh, no man, anything. Let's think and read about that verse a little bit before we jump to hasty conclusions on what Paul is teaching in this passage. He says the context of verses 1 through 7 is being an obedient citizen of a nation. And he says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues. If the government sets forth dues that you owe, render the dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. You've got to pay custom sometimes. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. He's speaking about those in authority. Tribute, customs, fear, because of their position, and honor. Owe no man anything. If a man is due fear, honor, tribute, custom, don't you dare not pay what is his due. In context of fear, honor, tribute, custom, pay. Owe no man anything. But what is the one thing you're to owe every man? To love one another. Can you pay fear? You can pay fear. If you're in the presence of a man who deserves your respect, you can show your fear of that man and you can pay fear. If you're in the presence of a man who deserves honor, you can pay honor. You can do that so that you can be free of that and not owe a man anything. You can pay your tribute, your taxes, your customs, your license fees. You can pay all that when it's due. And so that you don't owe anything. But there's one thing Paul's trying to teach here. He's shifting subjects in verse 8. He's moving from eight verses dealing with civil government to verses dealing with love of neighbor. And now he's saying there's one thing you can never pay enough of. It's something you've always got to be working for. And what is that? To love one another. Because what is love? The fulfilling of the whole law. That you'll never pay. You will never be able to love one another completely and fully all the time. That is what you're to be paying continually, always. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Owe no man anything? Does that mean never to be under obligation to another person? Or does that mean when a person is due honor, due fear, due some customs, due some tribute, you pay him so that you don't owe? That is the only possible interpretation or application of that verse you can make unless you want to be a gigantic hypocrite. Because all of us owe men many things. Think about it with me for just a second. What about your taxes? Your tribute? Think about your tribute. Some of you pay taxes at the end of the year. Do you not? What do you owe during the year? Do you owe tribute? In a sense, you do, don't you? Does the government consider you owing tribute? Not really. They haven't asked for you to pay it yet. Until April 15th, you truly don't owe it in the sense that this verse is talking about when it's due. You know, when are taxes due? April 15th. They're not due in October or November. Even in taxes, we owe when we pay at the end of the year. We pay on April 15th. What about leases? Have any of you ever leased something? Do you owe a man something? 
you owe his asset back and you owe payments for the term of that lease. So you owe. Don't try to come with, to me with Romans 13.8 and say that applies to all financial situations that you can never owe a man. You can't exist in this world without owing a man something. How about your employer? Okay, you tell me I have no debts at all and I own my own house free and clear. Do you work for a man? What do you owe him? You may have signed a statement saying you'll give a two-week notice before you terminate employment. You may have said that you'll not work for anyone else that is, a main, that is a direct competitor of his in the market. You owe him a number of things. That's the whole nature of a servant. You owe your master a number of things. When you enter into a mortgage contract to purchase a home, if you are making your payments by the first of every month, when the payment is due, do you owe any man anything? No, you do not. The terms of that contract have been fully met. Would you tell me what you owe the mortgager? What do you owe him? The terms of the contract have been fully met. If you're making your payments on time, you don't owe the bank anything if your payments are on time. Owe no man anything. Don't owe what is due. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. When something is due and owing in the, in the way of respect or in the way of a payment, it's due. But for a mortgage contract, if you're living up to the terms of that contract, you are not owing any man anything any more than you're owing your employer when you're an employee to give a notice a reasonable amount of time as a notice to be there every morning at a certain time and to work a certain way and to keep your asset in certain shape if you're renting a house. You're always owing. Don't let that verse condemn you unjustifiably so. Now, if you're late in your payments, let it condemn you. Unjustified debt. Unjustified debt is one of two things. Either you are a net debtor. That means that you take all your assets and all your liabilities. You subtract the liabilities from the assets. If the number is negative, you've sinned. You have incurred debt beyond your ability to pay. You know what that shows me? It shows me that you're not working patiently. How in the world... Have you borrowed money in excess of your ability to pay? That is due. When you buy a house, you have an asset that better exceed the value of what you pay for it, what you borrow, right? So when you take your assets and you subtract your liabilities, you have a positive number on a house mortgage, on a car, if you make the proper loan. And you, keep, you take care of the car. You don't take care of the car and you let the value of that asset slip and you're a net debtor again. And the Lord condemns that in His Word. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. Being a net debtor where you're unable to pay your obligations. Remember, proper debt is debt for something you have to have where you've got an asset where you can pay it off. When you buy a house, 
Let's say you buy a house for $50,000. You have an asset worth fifty. You make a mortgage for 40000 You subtract the one from the other. The 10000 is your equity. You're positive. But most of, many Americans, when they take their assets and subtract their liabilities, it's a negative number. If they were to liquidate everything they own, they could not meet their obligations. That is fraud. That is what our government and the Federal Reserve Banking System does to every one of us on a daily basis. How many people do we do that to? Promise to pay everyone and we're unable to pay. I mean, it wouldn't take 10% of the depositors in the U.S. to run the banking system before it would collapse. I mean, it takes about 2% to get some of these savings and loans to go under. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 26. Be not thou one of them that strike hands. They're always going around entering into contracts. Or of them that are sureties for debts. If thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? You've got to have a bed. See, here's a man whose liabilities exceed his assets. Solomon is saying, why are you going to do that? Don't do that, he said in verse 26. Be not thou one of them. Let me remind you again. Paying late, making a late payment, is not just something unfortunate. It's just not an accident. It's just not an oversight. It is sin. It is these three sins. It is lying, covenant-breaking, and stealing. It is lying because when you got the money, you agreed to pay it back according to certain terms. It is covenant-breaking because that was in the form of a covenant. And it is stealing because if you pay it one day late, you have that person's payment. It's now his. It's his property. You've kept it for your own use. You have stolen. If you'll make your payments on time, God will bless you. Rule number eight is to manage your debt. If you'll manage your debt by, minimizing your, by eliminating debt for unnecessary things, by minimizing debt in general, paying your debts off quickly, making all your payments on time, the Lord's blessing will be upon you. The Contrary to whatever the U.S. government may say, contrary to what your visa advertisements every other month may say, if you will manage your debt and minimize your debt, God's blessings will be upon you financially. It's all part of self-discipline. People spend what they don't have because they are unable to wait. We live in a society that doesn't expect anyone to wait at all. I mean, you can't wait to marriage to have sex. You can't wait till you save the money to buy something. You've got to buy it early. You can't wait, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. No patience at all. God wants people to wait. And you will wait before you go into debt foolishly. One last verse, right there in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. How does this have to relate to debt? You do need to establish some credit. Part of rule number eight, managing your debt, means make sure you have some credit. Now, the unfortunate thing in our society is, you know how you get credit? You be a net debtor. If you're a net debtor and you're making your payments, they'll loan you money. If you've got lots of money in the bank and you go to the bank and ask for a loan, guess what? No way, Ray. Sorry. Many times, if you go to the bank 
and you've got a bank account, you won't get the loan if you haven't established credit. Because the way loans are made today in America is by computer, where they access several credit rating agencies that keep debt information on you, your credit card numbers and your payment history, and you've got some moron sitting there at the computer terminal who calls up your name and social security number and finds out whether you've made payments or not. They don't know whether you have a bank account or not. They don't know that you own assets at home. They don't know that you have 10000 in cash in your mattress. They just know that you haven't borrowed enough. So they're not going to make you another loan. Now, isn't that sick? I mean, the people you ought to loan money to are those that save, that have some discipline. People who borrow are showing they don't have discipline. People who save are showing the discipline that a true lender ought to be concerned with. Well, God's turned us over to the foolishness of our leaders and financiers. But a wise thing for you to do is to have some credit. There are some easy ways to get credit. You can get several credit cards. I mean, they want to give you credit. Trust me. They want to give it to you. Don't use them. Just stick them in your wallet. Why do you need credit? The prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. Evil days may come. You may lose your job and your savings may run out after three or four months. And you may need to borrow a little bit for a while to stave off disaster. Or you may run into an opportunity where you have 24 hours to react. You may have an opportunity where you've got three hours to react, to make an investment, buy an asset. You may not have assets in liquid form. You need to be able to borrow. So establish some credit. May the Lord bless each of us to manage debt. Some of you haven't managed debt. Brother Sam, who stood before you and revealed some of his past, didn't manage his debt. That is an example. But how many of you have approached Sam's situation, exceeded Sam's situation, or have had situations like it in your past? May God bless each of us to be the head, not the tail. To be the one blessed and ruling, not the one being ruled. May we be the ones in financial health and wealth, not the ones in decay. May we be the ones that are free, not the ones that are servants. May we be the ones who aren't going to have our children sold into bondage and slavery after we go out of this world because we don't give them an inheritance. You want to help your children? Then don't borrow money to pay for their college education. Save some money to give them an inheritance to help them stave off the financial disaster that is coming to the citizens of this nation. May the Lord bless each of us to use credit properly and may all of you be saved from a false application or concern over Romans 13.8. All of us, whether you're renting or borrowing from the bank, we owe men things, and I hope that all of you are paying what you owe when it is due.